Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi, everybody. I am so excited to bring you the first full episode of the Arthritis Life podcast. Today, I'm talking to Sarah Dillingham, who's had rheumatoid arthritis for many years. We're going to cover so much ground. We're also going to cover a really fun story about how she made her own custom wedding day splint. The one thing I want to tell you really quickly is that this was recorded back in November of 2019. So there's no mention of the current pandemic because it was a little bit before then. All right, let's go. Hi, my name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis. I've lived with rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years, and I'm also a mom, teacher, and occupational therapist. I'm so excited to share my tricks for managing the ups and downs of life with arthritis. Everything from kitchen life hacks to how to respond when people say you don't look sick, stress, work, sex, anxiety, fatigue, pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. I'm so excited to be with Sarah Dillingham today. She's going to share a little bit about herself and her diagnosis story. Yeah, so <laughs> I was diagnosed with rheumatoid um, around 18 years ago. I was 28. I'm 46 now. Okay. I had what I thought was a broken finger mm -hmm. and it didn't get better over a few weeks which mm -hmm. is very odd so initially I just ignored it because I just thought oh I've broken my finger it'll sort itself out mm -hmm. and then eventually I went to my doctor and I was incredibly fortunate because my doctor took one look at it and said I think that's rheumatoid arthritis. Wow, that is which almost is the first time I've heard extremely, that. Yeah. extremely rare. Yeah, and yeah. Um, so I was immediately 
referred to a rheumatologist. Okay, great. Um, I still had to wait for that appointment, so it was around three months until I saw a rheumatologist. Okay. But it was a very fortunate that I got that fast referral because right. within that three months, I suddenly started developing a lot more symptoms. Mm. And then when I saw my rheumatologist, I got a blood test, okay. uh, which confirmed the diagnosis and everything went from there. So I count That's myself very lucky yeah, <laughs> to yeah. get diagnosed within, yeah, diagnosed within three months, started treatment within six Wow, and then you were living in London at the time? Yes, right? that's yeah. right. Yeah. So you're going through the British healthcare system, yes. which as I understand is a little different it than is. ours. Yeah. yeah. But can you walk us through a little bit of the, the journey, your journey with rheumatoid arthritis, maybe from the medical side of like, you know, which kind of um, medications, your experience with medications? Sure. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's been a roller coaster. Yeah. Um, the first medications I were on were the pretty common um, sulfasalazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was another one, I forgot the name, it might be Plaquenil. Yeah, yeah, Plaquenil. Yeah. Uh, and then methotrexate. Okay. And I was on those for around around eight years altogether. Okay. Okay. Um, it started off, I was reasonably well controlled. Okay. But then after a couple of years, my, it became really severe. My symptoms became really okay. severe. To the point where I was in absolutely excruciating pain. Oh, no. I could barely walk. I was in a job that I was coming to the point. I mean, I don't even know how I got up and went into work in the morning. Mm-hmm. I, all I could do for about a year was going to work, come home again, go to bed, wow. get up. I was sitting at my desk. I would have um, like heat pads on my hands, on my knees, Gosh. on my feet. Um, it was a really bad situation. I remember going into a pharmacy in my work and just begging them to give me anything. Um, yeah, like, yeah. what could you give me? And he just said, I can sew your TENS machine because that's about the only thing I can give you right now that isn't, you know, Nurofen mm-hmm. or, you know, ibuprofen or something like that. Right, right. Um, and so it was a really tough situation. Um, and my, I felt my rheumatologist at the time was not super sympathetic to the situation I was in and the um because the only solution that was being offered was more and more and more methotrexate and I did not tolerate methotrexate very well it made me very nauseous um it you know it seems like a minor thing but it was pretty stressful at the time it you know caused my hair to break and fall out yeah (laughs) posted pictures of my hair and even though it's you know in the scheme of things it's a cosmetic thing I actually Mm -hmm. found that quite upsetting um and I found it really difficult you know because my I was taking more and more of this drug with these horrible side effects and yet my symptoms seem to keep getting worse. And was this, I, I couldn't do the math, is this the early 2000s or the mid Oh, uh, yeah, it would have been sort of uh, mid 2000s, so I'd have thought. the biologics had come out already. So, yeah, so the biologics were out, mm-hmm. but they weren't being routinely prescribed oh, okay, okay. Uh, where, where I was at that okay, point. Okay. And what happened, again, I had another stroke of good fortune. I was leaving my rheumatologist clinic and I'd had such an awful appointment. Um, and I came out and I was very tearful and a nurse saw me and she came up to me and said, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And I just said, listen, I don't think I can take any more methotrexate. Yeah. And she said, you know what? Someone here is running a clinical trial for a new drug called Hamira. Oh you gosh. might be a candidate. Yeah. And so I managed to get funneled into that. And 
everything changed. I mean, I, it didn't happen immediately because I had to continue taking methotrexate okay. to prove for a certain period that I'd, I'd failed the drug. Yeah, so this is step therapy yes. for those of you who've heard about that. Yeah, so I had Wonderful to go through the, the, the step therapy process, which means you have to have a certain amount of time showing mm -hmm. a certain level of symptoms. So I had to kind of officially go through that, like have a particular yeah. start time and end time. Right, right, right. But once I had done that, um, which was really horrible, um, I was put on method, um, on Hamira and it was incredible. Like My, uh, the only way I could describe it is that I almost felt like I was getting younger. Yeah. I went from be barely being able to walk to running around. Wow. I wouldn't say I was in complete remission, you know, I still had some symptoms. Right. But, you know, I went from like an eight pain level, eight out of ten pain, down to like a two or three. And which is probably the best it's ever going to be for me. And I'm very OK with that. Um, so, yeah, so it was amazing. Um, wow. Hamira did great stuff for me for around 10 years. Yeah. Then it stopped working as mm -hmm. these biologic drugs can. I then had a year on. And, and you know, during this time, I won't go into all of it, but you know, I was, in and out of using prednisone or okay. steroid injections yeah, into yeah. joints, particularly my knees and feet, which were, mm -hmm. have been the biggest problems for me. Mm -hmm. And um, lots and lots of jointless <laughs> into joints, yeah, which is yeah. fun. Um, and then I got to the point where I tried Simsia. Did not work. Oh, Didn't yeah. work at all. Had a horrible year on Simsia where I got lots of, I got three Baker cysts on my knee, which oh. was... I, haven't, I forgot what those are. Oh, it's where... Um, Basically, you have fluid in your knee and it swells up your oh, knee to yeah. a massive football size oh, and, and then yeah. it ruptures and goes down your leg and you have a big elephant oh, leg. It's really, really unpleasant. Yeah. Um, but I now, you know, I have a very good rheumatology team now. Yeah, and yeah. when Sims, it was obvious Sims, it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. They were able to work with me to find out the best possible solution. And now I'm taking uh, infusion. Okay. And I get that done regularly, and that's working brilliantly. Okay. So can you tell me a little bit about some of the highlights and lowlights about your interactions with different doctors and providers and kind of what general um, things that really work great, the things, great things your providers yeah. have done, and then maybe... Little, Not so great. <laughs> yeah, walk down memory lane, like happy and also sad. Okay, so... Yeah. Um, <laughs> How many hours start, do we have now? Yeah, exactly. No, no. I'll start with the positive. Yeah. Um, I have a great rheumatology team right now uh, at Seattle Arthritis Clinic. And what I really, yeah, absolutely great. great. And what I really appreciate about my rheumatologist and the nursing mm. staff there is how open and transparent they are with me when we're talking through my mm -hmm. treatment options. Mm -hmm. Um, also, when they're talking about my situation, test results, everything we do, they are very straightforward. Mm -hmm. I never feel like I'm being pushed in the direction mm -hmm. of anything. I'm always given enough information that I can make an informed choice. Mm -hmm. And that really builds up a lot of trust in the relationship. Yeah, yeah. So when Simsia failed for me, and I was looking at what my options are because I'd already failed two biologic drugs mm -hmm. and I don't tolerate methotrexate, well, you know, I had somewhat limited choice. Mm -hmm. So it was really important that the next choice I made was hopefully yeah. the right one. Right. 
So having someone that I trusted mm. to be able to lay out the pros and cons for right. me right. for those different options was just enormously helpful. Yeah. So then when I made my next medication choice, mm-hmm. I really felt that I was doing it from a place where I had a solid understanding mm-hmm. of what the risks were and what the potential positive benefits were. And that makes a big difference. So it, if, if I would paraphrase it, it sounds like you were able to like collaborate, almost like a collaborative decision yeah, where they absolutely. informed you, but then you were given a voice. It wasn't just like, you must do. No, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It okay. was very much like, you know, here are some options for you. This is what would be good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what might not be so good. Here are the risks. It's your decision. Yeah. You know, not it's like empowering. Do this. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that, that was amazing. Great. And it also, having that kind of relationship, it has a secondary benefit in that, you know, I don't feel stressed out when I go to that clinic. I'm not worried. Mm. I'm not thinking I have to get in there and make sure they hear what I'm saying. Or I'm not worried about I have to come out with this prescription. I know I can just be very honest and have that, you know, kind of respectful, yeah. grown-up conversation about it. That's awesome. Okay, really so those is, are all the yeah. good... That's how it should be, <laughs> ideally. And we know, like, out of respect for all the hard work doc- doctors do, there are sometimes, you know, constraints on their time. Of or course, But yeah. at the same time, it's important, I think, to shed light on some of the low lights or the the bad experiences you've had only so that other people, especially like maybe med students or prospective um, doctors can maybe reflect and learn from the mistakes of others. So what are some of the bad things? So I have had some, yeah, not so great experiences and I won't run through all of them, but I will give... Yeah, we don't have that much time. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give one example of just someone delivering some information in a way that wasn't helpful. Um, and also just generally to say that you know most of my not so great experiences have really boiled down to a kind of um condescending dynamic where Mm. it's really almost like I'm being told stuff as though frankly as though I'm an idiot and I couldn't possibly understand it and you should be doing this because uh, not even because you should be doing this and if you don't well do you want to be sick then you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um and I appreciate when people are time-pressed, they're perhaps always not great at communicating, but I've had some real shockers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll give you one that wasn't too terrible, but it's just a good example, mm-hmm. which was years ago when I was taking high dose of methotrexate, I was also taking high dose of prednisone. Mm-hmm. And one of the conversations I had with my rheumatologist was upping either or both of those things. Right. And... My rheumatologist was keen to up the methotrexate. I would have preferred to up the prednisone. Yeah. And so we sort of were trying to figure that out. And, yeah. and I said, well, you know, I really would like, prefer to, you know, I, I don't do well on methotrexate. Yeah. Can, can we increase the prednisone? And my rheumatologist said, well, only if you want your bones to crumble in this really sarcastic way. And oh I, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that information's correct. You know, high dose of prednisone can cause or, you know, increase risk of osteoporosis. You don't want osteoporosis, obviously. Um, But, you know, there's a way to deliver that. You can say, well, the reason I'd prefer you not to is because there's an increased risk of osteoporosis and you're already on 25 and et cetera, et cetera. 
and I can say, okay, fine, yeah, that's right. fair enough. Right. Um, and you can have a conversation about the pros and cons. What you don't need is some scathing, sarcastic remark, because what yeah. that does is it just shuts down the conversation. So yeah. I came out of that uh, just feeling really discouraged, feeling really like I was stupid, to be honest, yeah. like, oh, okay, yeah. I'm an idiot, I don't know what I'm talking about. And then also feeling very unheard Mm -hmm. because the outcome of that was we increased my methotrexate which is exactly what I didn't want to do Um, and in that circumstance I went away in my prescription and I did what I was told but I seriously thought about just slinging it away you know or just like well I'll just I'll just nod and smile in the appointment and then I'll go and do whatever I want to do. <laughs> and then you'd be written off by them as non-compliant. And non-compliant, really right. Your intentions are to do the best, make the best decisions for you. Of course, and I want to yeah. do the right thing. And, uh, you know, and if someone, if she had sat and explained that to me, mm-hmm. then I'd be totally open to hearing it. But it's right. that kind of uh, yeah. communication style. It's just not constructive. Yeah, and it's kind of like, in the US at least, I've heard people refer to that as kind of old school, like in the old school way of being trained in medicine it was like you know you're the doctor you're god like you tell everyone what to do and they just listen like very paternalistic very patronizing and at the same time it's it's efficient but it's not okay to to be that to, to first of all it's not okay to not listen to your patients obviously yeah second of all to to minimize their fears through like sarcasm <laughs> yeah, no, is, no is one likes not, sarc- being on the no. receiving of sarcasm no, on I a mean, medical appointment no. I mean that's just a thing <laughs> only if you're like together joint like I've maybe yeah, joked sure. around oh, with no, my dermatologist before yeah, yeah. Really different yeah. yeah but having them take that tone with you is yeah obviously very unhelpful and hopefully I think doctors nowadays are being trained to be a little bit more you know patient-centered but um, unfortunately, there's still people out there. Well, and I think, um, you know, you mentioned efficiency. Mm-hmm. I, I think it might short-term be efficient because, you know what, you get someone, you know, you can keep that appointment, mm-hmm. you know, succinct. But I don't think it's efficient for the long-term if you've got a patient who's wandered off and has completely lost point. trust in the relationship. Because mm-hmm. I'm assuming that a, a medical practitioner would want their patient to be honest, Yeah, you know. <laughs> It's um, like a vicious negative cycle. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it might be you want your patient to be saying honest about, you know, if they're drinking or smoking or, or doing yes. whatever. You yes. don't want them to think, well, I can't, you know, I don't feel comfortable with this person. I'm just going to say what I need to say to get out of here, you know? Oh, that's, so, I've yeah. definitely had those situations. And that can even happen on the positive side where, like, let's say your doctor recommended something and you have a great relationship with your doctor right. and you almost don't want to tell them it's not working because you don't want them to feel <laughs> bad. And you're them. like, um, oh, it's fine. Everything's yeah. fine. Yeah. You know, so it's funny. I, I At the rheumatology conference last weekend, I, I can't remember the exact example, but talked a little bit about that. I think it was in the sleep, talking about um, studies about sleep and sleep um, techniques. And they were saying, Mm. you know, you have to be careful about if somebody tries something, like let's say put your Fitbit on or something to track your sleep, that they don't then feel this pressure to report that it's going better than it is. So they're not skewing it either way. Yes, exactly. But back to the main point, yeah, the things, it's like they're your good experiences at the arthritis clinic and then your bad experiences are like two sides of the same coin. It's like the good one is what to do and the bad one is not doing what the arthritis clinic person well, did. Yeah. And I think there's like a third layer in there, okay. which is just neutral, which is, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it does have a, 
an impact on, on, on all of us, mm-hmm. patients and providers, which is just systemic things that are baked into the system. Mm, and I was thinking so about important. this a lot the other day um, because, and I don't know if this is the case here or if it's changed, but I remember some years ago when I was having my really serious feet problems, um, having a joint count done on me. And oh, yeah. um, my rheumatologist marking down that my joint count hadn't changed. And I could barely stand up. And I said, but what about my feet and ankles? And my rheumatologist said, oh, we don't count those. And I was just That's like... So wrong. I was like, what? And she said, well, we don't... And I, this might be different now. So I yeah, put yeah. that caveat in because this was yeah. about yeah. Yeah. seven or eight years ago. And um, yeah, she just said, yeah, we don't count feet. And I said, but look at my feet. It's and she said, we don't, we don't count like, feet. But yeah, apparently wow. at that point in time when they did their... You know, when they go around and press your joints, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, she that wow. feet weren't included. So well, it was this really Kafkaesque moment where they were recording that I'd had no change and I had giant. Yeah, there's so feet. much. Yeah, like that's why I, uh, my rheumatologist's <laughs> office, and I, I sh- I'll look up and I'll link to the name yeah. of what this is, but they have this very common questionnaire that you fill out every time and the first one is like these very basic questions like can you walk a mile can you open the faucet but the bottom it used to just say rate your pain today on a scale one to ten which I really have a hard time doing and it's not because I'm like annoyed at it although I happen to be it's because it's very difficult to put a number to it because there's all different kinds of pain there's soreness there's stiffness there's acute pain I might have a zero on sharp stabbing pain but a five on soreness and stiffness so what am I supposed to say, you know? But so, but they started, they put a new one in there starting last year and it was like, cons- it's my favorite one. It says, considering all the ways that illness and health can affect you, mm-hmm. how would you rate your functioning on a scale? Oh, okay. Like, like, cause I might be like, my pain might be a two, but my, like back when I had a whole bunch of comor- comorbidities going on in terms right. of like dysautonomia and gastroparesis and like I had had a yeah. concussion and I had all these other things. My, I was like at a, my functioning was like at a three out of 10, but my mm. pain was only at a, two. like you want your function to be like a 10. So be like the pain was only like a two because the pain isn't the, the contributor to mm. my lack of functioning. You know what I mean? So it's like as an OT, we're always taught to look at like end of the day, like how can the patient function? Right. So it's like, okay, maybe the joint count sheet that you're supposed to write down yeah. does not tell the whole story, right. you know? So. Well, and, and that's it, you know, I mean, obviously I'm no expert on how they capture metrics for mm-hmm, these things mm-hmm. but you know and I, I'm sure there are people looking at it and improving these things I mean I have noticed that now you know there's a lot more questionnaires about um you know mood and depression and anxiety yes. fatigue was the new fatigue. one that came out of patient studies yeah. like hey look so I think I fatigue. think they are yeah getting better at that and actually mm-hmm. you just reminded me there is a thing where I go into my rheumatologist now where every time you go in there's a little picture of a person and you circle the bits that hurt um, yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 so I think there's and I, I don't know how this stuff's organized but I, I do think you know these things are getting better but I suspect that there mm-hmm. are still lurking things in the system so much um, particularly around capturing metrics where perhaps you know doctors are frustrated I mean because I oh. can't be nice to that rheumatologist she can see my feet were a mess you know? yeah it's it's really that like I, I noticed in, in occupational therapy, I used to work a lot with children on like the autism spectrum, which seems like a you know, different area, but yeah. it's the same thing where the things that are easiest to measure are the least important. You know, oh, I can yeah, measure, I can put a number to it, how many yeah. times a child does or doesn't 
do a particular action. Right. But it doesn't really tell the story of, you know, why. Why are they doing that oh, okay. or not? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, well, why, like, yeah, how many joints hurt or how many are puffy or inflamed doesn't, doesn't tell a story of what is that joint doing yeah. in real life. Like, yeah. are you able to hold your toothbrush? Can you make a meal for yourself? Right. Like, you know, but, but back to the systems level, I think um, it definitely is an example of where I think doctors can get frustrated by external constraints, like obviously oh, sure. insurance. One that's, oh, that's, one that's gotten yeah. me before is like, um, I've had people limit my options saying, oh, well, insurance won't cover that. Well, like, wait right. a minute, give me the choice. Tell me, right. tell me what that costs because yeah. I might, like one time it was like, and this is actually for my son, but it was like, he was nauseous and they gave us an anti-nausea med and they're like, okay, well, um, I forget how the pharmacist was able to explain to me eventually, like, well, you can flavor it so the child likes it more, but that's not covered by insurance. I'm like, well, I don't care. Like, how much more is it? It's like five bucks. So, but that's happened before with with my healthcare, where it's like people assume that you only want to do something that's covered by insurance. And yeah, if it's like an MRI that's going to cost $10,000, yeah, I probably will want my insurance (laughs) to cover that. But give us an, don't make the decision for the patient. I think, you know, the reality of, the medical systems both in the UK and the US is that they are so complex mm-hmm. and you know I don't want to get too much into the yeah. <laughs> stuff behind it because we'll be here for a long time but they are so complex that they do you know there's no way you can have something that complexity that doesn't bring in some kind of blunt restrictions and frustrating yes. stuff. So like, as a patient of having a chronic illness over mm-hmm. many years, you end up kind of becoming almost an expert in like how to be a patient. Yes. So do you have any kind of expert patient tips for other maybe newly diagnosed patients or people who are just wanting advice from others? Yeah, very much. Um, I have several. So, <laughs> so first thing newly diagnosed people is that even though a diagnosis can be daunting and scary, you are really going to help yourself by getting lots of information. Mm. Um, it can be daunting doing that. I totally put my head in the sand when it happened and tried to ignore it. Mm. But I found that when I actually faced up to it and read up as much as I could about my condition and found authoritative, useful information That's sources, That's um, I'm a big fan of the Arthritis Foundation website. They've got mm. some really solid information on that. Um, so that's the first thing is, you know, give yourself lots of information to help you understand, mm-hmm. you know, as much as possible. And I mean, there's a lot of information. So, you know, you might want to stagger it because yeah. it can yes. be a bit overwhelming. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is one of the things I learned to do through, you know, I had had many challenging experiences with you know, medical appointments that haven't worked as well as I wanted to, mm-hmm. is I actually almost, particularly if I'm not sure I trust the medical provider, I almost treat them like a business meeting, in the, <laughs> which is a bit probably over the top. You are paying for <laughs> Wow. Well, yeah. um, but what I do is I go into it thinking, I make sure I'm early. I make sure, you know, mm. I'm not going to be kicked out because I'm not on time. I make sure that I kind of know what I want to get out of it going in so it might be that I'm, I'm in there and I just want to have information it might be that I'm want to change up my medication or, or whatever it is I've got mm-hmm. a sense of what I think I need or, or maybe yeah. I need a diagnosis or maybe so I, I kind of have a sense of what I want mm-hmm. to get out of it and then I also try to obviously have a good relationship 
with right. that provider um, in that I, you know, I'm always polite and respectful because I think right. you just should be anyway. Right. Um, but if I have questions that I want to ask, um, I do the trick that many people do, which is I will literally take them in on a list. Oh, yeah. Um, if I am in the um, appointment and, you know, there's stuff happening, I'll, I'll make notes. I don't mind. I'll put bullet point notes. Nice. Yeah. Um, because, yeah. because sometimes when you're... I found when I've been in um, appointments where I've had, you know, news which is very emotionally upsetting or mm-hmm. difficult to hear um actually for me having my little notebook um mm-hmm. is something I can kind of hold on to to, to kind of steady oh, myself and yeah. also the other thing is when people tell me stuff that makes me upset I immediately forget it so <laughs> yeah, I, sorry, I'm laughing because I'm the same way I yeah. come out and think oh I don't know what happened there so I've actually got some notes now I've not, my current rheumatologist is great they print out loads of information for me at the yes. end of the appointment yeah. but that is you know not something that's happened to me that's a an exception mm-hmm, for me mm-hmm. um usually that hasn't happened so i make my little notebook and then the other thing and this is a tip i got off someone else and it's happened is if i've been in a situation where um a medical professional says to me well you know say yeah hypothetically well from your symptoms you know we could run text test x mm-hmm. but we're not going to run but i don't think we need to it's because what I'll say to them is, okay, so that's fine if you don't think we need to do something, mm-hmm. but could you put in my notes now, yeah. we have decided not to run test X because. Yeah, yeah. And I think because sometimes the things that don't happen don't get recorded. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that if I go to other uh, practitioners, oh, right. you know, people will say things like, well, why didn't you have this done? And I'll say, I don't know. And they'll say, well, you should have had this done. And then you're in this very unhelpful situation where if you can say, well, I was advised not to have this done. And you will see in my notes and they can go, oh, right. And they can either then say, well, that makes sense. Oh, I can see. Or, oh, I disagree. Yeah, because they don't all agree. Yeah. No, exactly. And it keeps it very factual. And it also Mm -hmm. kind of covers me because, you know, it's like it was that medical professionals right right expert advice not to do that not not that I you know said oh I'm not going to do it or I didn't turn up for the test or you know and I've had situations as well oh and the last thing I I do is if there are additional tests that I need like blood tests which happen all the time or x-rays or imaging Mm -hmm. or whatever I I go to them you know I try and get them done immediately especially if they're one of those things where you get a piece of paper and you're like okay you have to get your blood test done. And right, you've maybe right. been there for a couple of hours and you think, oh, I really just want to go home. Yes, I've, I've done that before. <laughs> I force, yeah, I've done it too. I force myself to go. Just get it over with. And I also, and you know, make a note in my diary of blood tests happened on this day. Now, the reason I do that is because I had, a, you know, I've had various situations where test results have got lost or muddled up. I had a particularly significant one back in the UK where a blood test of mine was lost and without going into the very tedious detail of it the knock-on effect of that was a prescription wasn't renewed which meant that I didn't get my medication which meant the delivery company didn't clear my medication to go out and trying to unpick that with you know the hospital blaming the delivery company blaming the pharmacy blame 
I mean, it took me like a week of many angry phone calls, to, all the while not taking my Hamira. It took me a week oh. to unpick it and finally work out that uh, this blood test had gone missing. And then when I tried to address that, I was just told, oh, well, you didn't turn up for it. You didn't have it done. And I was like, I definitely did have it done. Well, well, wow. if you don't have your blood test done, we can't... Really... So, of course. So, you get this situation... You got That's oh, totally, yeah. That is so Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, and just to explain really quickly, the reason that things get delayed with these kind of medications that we are on for RA in particular are that they're so expensive yes. that there's all these little loopholes that have to be met before you can get it it's not like you just go to walgreens and get it like you could get you know a prescription for a blood pressure medication or something not to say they don't you do have to do blood work for that occasionally i think like every year but these they don't like even for mine for infusion based they don't mix it till you physically show up for the appointment because it's so expensive they don't want to waste any so that that's a that's a pressure on you as a patient all of that it's completely fine and oh yeah, all just of that. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and you know, I'm, you know, totally okay with all that. But yeah, um, that experience made me realise yeah. that, you know, I had this really awful experience where, anyway, everyone was just blaming each other. Uh, yeah. They were t- everyone was too busy blaming each other to try and resolve the situation. And the one thing I didn't have on my side was I actually did go to this blood test. Um, and I know I can't really prove anything by having something in my diary. But when you're in the middle of trying to unpick mm-hmm. stuff like that being able to flip back in your diary and or, or your online calendar and say yeah I definitely did the go date. on this day and yeah. I was there at this time and so yeah I feel really confident you know take a selfie in the yeah. blood clinic yeah no seriously why not you can like, here's a picture of me there so I mean stamped. yeah wow you know and, and then the last uh, so you know I know my approach sounds very yeah. belt and braces and is quite rigorous um you know but I, I, I belt and braces for, oh, for Americans. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, yeah. So it means when you wear... Um, oh, you call them suspenders. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very formal. Yeah. When, you know, it means when you... Um, when you're doing too much to keep your trousers right. up. So I you're see. wearing suspenders and a belt. So you're, oh, I like that. you're being okay. very okay. thorough. Good. You're being we're very, very thorough. You. We're educating people not just on arthritis, yeah. but on idioms in <laughs> British English versus American. So, yeah, so, so I know my approach, you know, of like taking notes and going yeah. in with questions and all of this good stuff. It, it might sound very overkill or over-engineered, yes, yeah. but for me, it works. And then the last thing I... 100% encourage anyone especially if you're newly diagnosed to do is to join an online patient community yes um, we're both part of some yes we some of them are. are more negatively focused than others so yeah um, and I think you know different personalities you know personalities work with different mm-hmm. groups but there are many many online communities um, I run one Arthritis Foundation run one. I mean, there's loads. Mm-hmm. So, and mm-hmm. lots of people in multiple communities. But the benefit of that is that if you do run into any challenging situations, you've got other people there who can, who've been there and done it and can yeah. share their experience, who can support you. And sometimes, you know what, you're just having a rough day and you want to vent. Vent. And you say, I'm having Mondays. Yes, we do. Moany Mondays. Or, yeah. And, and you have a chance yeah. just to say, you know what, I'm having a rough time. Yeah. And there's people who get it. And so also just like, just for fun Fridays. Or, yeah. Like, yeah, I Thankful love that. Thankful Friday. Thankful but, Friday. Yeah, where you share 
it's it's really it's really powerful to connect to others. I I think yeah. The only caution I always tell people who ask me is that you know to be careful about obtaining direct like medic medical advice yeah, from absolutely. other people. And we've talked about that before. Yeah. But, um, but just in case someone's just watching this video and not others, um, because it can be, um, I've seen people very unfortunately, you know, get scared off of trying medicines that are actually right. very evidence-based and yeah. very effective because they are thinking that, oh, I'm just going to try X, you know, kind of um, natural remedy or something, right. not that none of those ever work, but there you can have... Um, effects of like over generalizing based on one patient's experience you know but overall i think yeah the the good outweighs the bad on on many of the groups yeah, yeah well and but you know this is an important thing that we do see come up in groups um you know it happens in my one as well where you know one patient might have a particularly difficult experience on a drug and they they talk about it yeah. and and you know sometimes they might be having a really uh challenging side effect and, you know, particularly if someone's more at the start of their journey, mm-hmm. they can scary, can yeah. be a bit overwhelmed by that and say, yeah. okay, oh, you know, I'm feeling... And that's okay, you know, if people... T- you know, it's okay when people are able to talk about that. Right. Um, right. And the thing is that I think a lot of people who've been in the community for a long time or who've been diagnosed for a long time are often usually quite good, to be fair, at saying... Mm-hmm. you know what works for one person doesn't work for another yes you need yes. to go and talk to your neurotologist about it so one of the things that's great is that I think the community is a little bit um good at helping each other like that yes. but you're right it can be scary if someone's telling you uh, you know about something that's or like could oh, be like, really a bit much you know yeah or like I actually never knew people didn't tolerate methotrexate very well because I didn't look it up right. when I was first when I first got diagnosed, I just did what my doctor said because I was so <laughs> tired too. of feeling so bad for so yeah. long. I was like, and this was like 2003, so it was before the internet was really like a big resource, and there was no right. social media. There was literally yeah. just like Friendster at the time, <coughs> and so, um, so yeah, I had no idea until like um, a few years ago that I was like, what are, what's everyone talking about the methotrexate hangover? Mm. Because I tolerate it pretty well. I'm just mm. really lucky, and so no, I do get a little bit fatigued the next day, but it's not so noticeable that it would make me right. stop it, you know, but, but so many people do. So, you know, it's, it's that, yeah, it's being able to kind of take a critical eye or to say, okay, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach this like as if I'm just sitting in a waiting room with a bunch mm. of patients and, you know, not to take everyone's word as like literal, but to say, okay, that's like you said, yeah. co- coaching each other to to understand that this is one person's experience but humans we're storytellers right that's why i'm doing this whole project we love hearing other people's stories you're never going to stop patients from wanting to talk to other patients especially (laughs) you have 20 minutes to talk to your doctor you're like what do you talk about my disease for 20 minutes every (laughs) month that doesn't make any sense so um so i think sometimes providers kind of have this scared outlook again almost against social media and i've even seen it in the ot community oh yeah there people are afraid that that. well because patients come to appointments sometimes and say well i read this in my my social media group i read that i read that you can just cure arthritis by taking turmeric i read that you you know these things that are like again they aren't kind of necessarily understood in the greater context of like arthritis you know evidence-based care so but again we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. that's an american saying to the yeah. like, oh we do yeah. say that yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah just say you know like yeah that's that's unfortunate <laughs> when that happens but it could easily happen in real life too it's not just social media is just a medium it's well not, yeah absolutely um humans. you know you're always going to get patients talking to each other you're yeah. right they can patients talk in waiting rooms yeah. patients talk online 
I mean, I, I think on balance, yeah. I, I mean, I know that it is better for patients. I mean, I 100% yeah, know yeah. it is because I hear it all the time from people in groups. Overall, it's it's a beneficial thing for patients. I think it's it's just a matter of understanding that it's, it is information. Everything is information. It shouldn't be taken as like gospel. You know, one patient's experience. Yeah, for sure. Be. I am curious how your work life has been affected by your rheumatoid arthritis. It's definitely had a significant impact on my working life. Um, back in the UK, I used to work in a corporate job mm-hmm. that was very much about uh, being physically present in an office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and while I wasn't doing a excuse me <coughs> physical or heavy labouring type job, mm-hmm. I was working very long hours right. and in a fairly high pressure environment. Mm-hmm. And when you know, that's not very forgiving when you've got rheumatoid. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really impacted me was stress, you know, being in a competitive, stressful, high pressure environment, it's not great Mm -hmm. with rheumatoid. So one of the things that happened is that people started noticing that I was having these symptoms because because I was limping and I was using a walking stick and and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so... I made the decision to be very open about mm-hmm. having rheumatoid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the way I handled that was uh, every job I've done since I made that decision, I will email my mm-hmm. closest immediate team okay, and yeah. say, hi, I have this condition. This is what it means. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't affect my job. Right, if you see right. me limping around or, or yeah, whatever, yeah. this is what's going on. Okay, yeah. And I found that very helpful because it cut down on lots of people coming up to me and saying, oh, what's wrong with your foot? Or, mm-hmm. or, or if I'm wearing wrist braces, oh, what have you done to your arms? Yeah, what happened? As what if happened? It's like an acute injury. You know, yeah. and, and, you know, that's not their fault. They don't know. So, mm-hmm. of course, you're going to do that. Um, but, you know, it gets a bit much constantly mm-hmm. explaining it. And also because I just wanted to, you know, make it clear. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, that's a very personal decision to do that. Right. And, you know, I no longer work in that corporate world. Mm -hmm. And and my health is part of the reason. I've changed what I do and I do different things now. Um, Things that allow me to work from home, which is the the main reason I do them. Well, not the main reason, but a big contributing factor. Um, But, yeah, it's a very, you know personal decision about whether you tell colleagues Mm -hmm. because for me I found it just really helpful and that the majority of people were really cool and understanding and really kind you know I had a great reaction Uh, I didn't really have anyone try to you know undermine me professionally or 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 question whether I could do the job because of because of that however (laughs) in any environment a working environment particularly fast-paced competitive ones Mm -hmm. there is always a risk that there might be someone there who's not your number one fan Mm -hmm. and can potentially use this you know Mm -hmm. to undermine you or or against you in some way so it is a really 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 important decision and and of course if you do open up about um, Mm -hmm. health conditions and disability at work there's also the, the the fear that you know if there's a downsizing or something like that you might be more of a candidate so you know it's it's a really tricky one for a lot of people but I think it's really important to get it out there and talk about it 
Yeah, and that helps raise awareness of it, and especially the invisible impact of it. So even if maybe they see it, oh, your hands are in a wrist brace, but the email that you sent helps them understand, oh, it's actually not just about the hands. It's like a larger, you know, chronic well, illness. Well, and, and also because um, by doing that, um, it definitely encouraged people to ask me questions about it, mm-hmm. which is great because I can raise a bit of awareness. Um, but, you know, it just breaks down any awkwardness about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I'd say my overwhelming experience was that, you know, people were really, really understanding. And I actually had a couple of people be above and beyond supportive and nice. So That's a great success yeah, story. Oh, my success gosh. story, Yeah. I'm seeing a theme of like communication here, you know, communicating with providers, communicating with coworkers. And I'm also curious how rheumatoid arthritis has affected your relationships with, you know, family, friends, romantic relationships, whatever you want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, it definitely can have an impact. (laughs) It definitely (laughs) has an impact. I think it's a really difficult one. So... Whatever you want to say, yeah, you don't no, have, just, have to talk about I'm, it. I'm <laughs> thinking more where to start. So I think, again, starting with the positive, you know, I've had friends who've been very understanding mm-hmm. and lovely and totally get it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things you can tell is if you've, you know, if I'm having a, I mean, I've definitely had, I'm thinking, I'm just thinking of some nice things friends have done for me mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. I've been maybe stuck indoors and someone's popped around and said, hey, I'll hang out with you for a bit or whatever. Or, oh no, you know, or, or perhaps I've not been able to attend something and they've been completely understanding about it That's and not made so a big deal. Important. Yeah. Um, but also it can have a big impact because you go, I mean, I'm a very gregarious person. Mm-hmm. I'm very outgoing and social yeah. and chatty. And I used to go out, all the time and in fact when I was 15 someone called my dad at home uh, called my house and said where's is Sarah there and my dad said no she went out when she was 15 and she hasn't come back in again so (laughs) so to go so to go from that (laughs) um, to suddenly your life turning upside down and you can't go out half the time or, or not you know actually I had years where I could barely go out other than to go to work and that can really impact your relationships you know because people invite you to stuff they invite you to stuff and then they kind of stop inviting you to stuff absolutely yeah yeah and or you think you're going to come to something and then at the last minute you can't make it mm-hmm. and it just creates a really awkward yeah. un- unpleasant situation um so that that's difficult I think in romantic relationships as well you know, dating with rheumatoid is difficult because mm-hmm. at what point do you tell someone that you've got right. rheumatoid? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we can present as, you know, you hey, yeah, I'm completely healthy, you know, mm-hmm. um, and particularly on a good day, no one would know. Or, or they would look at me, I imagine people looking at me now wouldn't think, oh, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I do have some days where I'm not so well. And, you know, trying to communicate that is really mm-hmm. difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I certainly think there are impacts of rheumatoids, um, you know, around things like, you know, fertility and long-term health, mm-hmm. you know, the potential of moving into disability, mm-hmm. the potential of maybe having to stop work. You know, mm-hmm. those are kind of worst-case scenario things, but right. they, they mm-hmm. do happen. So if someone is 
talking about a very serious relationship with someone coming into it or you know getting married those mm-hmm. are things that they really need to consider if they're up for you know right, as as right. possible scenarios they right. might not necessarily happen mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but they're possible right. so you know it can be quite a I mean it's a big commitment you know um so yeah it definitely you know has has had impacts but overall you know I've been very lucky mm-hmm. um and you know the only thing is obviously as well the one thing I would say is when someone gets diagnosed with it, mm-hmm. you know, that's not just a shock for them, but it is also a shock for their friends and family. Mm. If you've got people close mm-hmm. to you, yes. you know, what? in my case, you know, it, it was shocking for family too, right. and they have to adjust to it. And I certainly talk to people all the time who are frustrated that their friends and family maybe haven't adjusted or don't understand. Yeah. Or they think they understand, or don't they wanna, don't. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. you know, or do the classic... Oh yeah, I've got a sawny too business. Or my grandma has. Yeah, and maybe aren't, and that can cause problems. And I've experienced that as well, where I've had people, you know, some friends, be a bit. Oh yeah, I've got that too. You know, almost like, what are you moaning about? And and mm. that's frustrating. It sounds less serious you know. than it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so yeah, that's my. Well, and I think at one point we were talking a while ago and you mentioned to me something about your wedding day splint. Do you want to share that? Or you don't, sorry, I didn't ask you this beforehand, but. Yes. Um, Yeah, I can talk about that. So um, on my wedding day. The wedding day day splint, this is a new Hallmark movie idea. copyrighted by me though. Yeah. Oh, if it was Hallmark. The wedding splint. They'd be calling it the Christmas wedding splint. The Christmas wedding splint. (laughs) They'd be doing it now. Yeah. so, yes, so what happened is I was planning my, I got married um, a few years ago and we wanted to do a first dance that was had lots of twirling around mm-hmm. in it because I had a big puffy dress on that I went to, you know, twirl about in and it was proving very difficult with my sore hands and yeah, my sore wrists. Yeah. I've got some erosions in my, bone eroded in my wrists mm-hmm. and so I needed to wear a uh, wrist brace on my okay. wedding day, okay. which is not Arthritis not life. a great life. yeah, which is rubbish, you know. Yeah. Um, but I got together with a friend who helped me out, and what we did was we customized it. We put it in fabric similar to my dress. We put sparkly, blingy nice. things on. Um, you know, we adjusted it a bit. So I could wear it and feel comfortable in it. Nice. And then what's come out of that is that I shared those photos online and I spoke to loads of other people who are fed up with their wrist braces, either because they're uncomfortable, hot, sweaty, or because they just don't, and or they don't like the way they look. So from there, I've started a startup developing better orthopedic wrist braces for people with chronic pain. So I'm working on that at the moment. We will, I'll definitely be sharing more about that as it becomes um, into the market phase. I don't know about business. Yeah. When it comes out to where we can buy it. I'll yeah, it, that might take a little, it takes a little while to do yes. these things, but yeah. So I mean, but it's amazing that you, as a patient and not as a medical provider, you saw, you know, a need that needs to be filled and you went out and, and did it, you know, or, well, or in the process of you are doing it. Yeah, and it really was. What, so two things have really made that happen the first thing I say was this overwhelming response from people saying 
oh, these things are terrible. I never, mm-hmm. basically, I kept hearing people saying, oh, I never wear mine in public. I hate it. And yeah. uh, A tool is only as good <laughs> as people's use of it right. and their willingness to use it. And right, and use. so they don't yeah. wear them. And I didn't used to wear mine as much as I should. And I, oh, and I you know, it's only because I had to wear it on my wedding. You know, I really had to wear it. I couldn't have done the dance. Um, and then the other thing is I met a hand therapist over here called Trevor, who I work with. And so, you know, Trevor, obviously... Trevor, who I went to high school with, the world is really... Yeah, <laughs> which is he's really random. Yeah, he's an occupational <laughs> therapist who's a certified hand therapist, which is a specialty And um, Yeah, and uh, so that was really cool because obviously I can come from the patient perspective, but I, I need someone who knows their way around hands. He knows So yeah, meeting yeah. him has really helped us start to get this going and um i'm now working with a factory and it does take a few months to source yeah, yeah. materials and get it going mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but yeah so hopefully we should have something um in 2020 awesome so i'm curious uh about the way in which rheumatoid arthritis or just chronic illness in general has affected your mental health and you know any struggles you've had that you'd be willing to share yes so I think, you know, having a long-term chronic condition is very challenging emotionally. Mm-hmm. It's a roller coaster emotionally to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have good days, you have bad days, you know, you have really, you know, difficult times. Mm-hmm. You know, dealing with pain on its own is exhausting. Yeah. You have, you can have pain, somnia, trouble sleep, sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say overall... I wouldn't have said I had any... So for a long time, even though I had some really emotionally Mm -hmm. challenging times, I wouldn't have said they tipped over into being mental health issues Mm. until I I was on prednisone. Well, I still am, but I was taking prednisone, a steroid, for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And I started to get some really... uh, difficult symptoms around anxiety and sort of panic attack type feelings mm-hmm. and I'd never really experienced anything it's like really that before scary. and I found it very debilitating and frightening yes yeah and it took me it took a while to work to work out the connection mm-hmm. between that and and I'm pretty sure it was the combination of prednisone the effect it has on my sleep because it really messes with my sleep mm-hmm. and, and and kind of all of it together Mm-hmm. And then if you layer on top of that, that having um, a chronic illness, you know, does impact all these things we've talked mm-hmm. about, like your working mm-hmm. life, your relationships, mm-hmm. you know, and y- your life just shifts. Yeah. And adjusting to that's very difficult. So, you, mm-hmm. you know, I did just feel, oh, how am I going to keep up at work? How am I going to keep my job? Oh, so-and-so seems a bit off with me because I didn't show up at that thing. You know, all that mm-hmm. stuff. If you layer on. that on, um, I did have some really... <clears throat> difficult in uh it was about a year where I was really struggling with anxiety mm-hmm. now once we figured out the role of prednisone in that I was able to reduce taper off the dosage mm-hmm. but I also um got some help mm-hmm. in terms of uh therapy mm-hmm. around cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. which really helped me in terms of managing it myself yes and since then I haven't had I had then didn't have so much of a problem with it. Um, but having gone back on pregnancy about two years ago, mm-hmm. it's kind of piped up again. Yeah. But what I found is that having had that therapy years ago, 
I've really got the tools to managing now. You know, I won't say I don't feel anxious or panicky ever. Of course I have those mm-hmm. times. But I've got, you know, I really feel like it's changed from a situation where I just feel very anxious and panicky and I don't know what's going on to I feel anxious and panicky and I know what's happening and mm-hmm. okay these are ways I can deal with it yeah. and um, so I can either use um, my cognitive behavioral therapy techniques mm-hmm. and I also I don't think I'm necessarily very good at it but I also try to do meditation every morning yeah no, and it's about <laughs> it's not about being good at that it's just being in the yeah no yeah, yeah I, I'm it trying. does not come natural it does not, not come naturally to me either <laughs> but, but it does help I find it very helpful trying it is as, as my psychiatrist says it's a, it's a practice you have to practice it yes it's a practice and does it I mean it is not a thing that you that's only beneficial if you're perfect at it and there is no perfect so yeah and I, and I was going to ask um, how did you I think a lot of times people get intimidated by the, just the process process of finding mental health help like um if you're open with sharing, yeah, did you see a counselor versus like a psychologist or did you get a referral or how did you find how did you take that step well I was initially referred to a psychiatrist okay yeah in the UK and he was great he was really lovely um and initially we were looking at medication which mm-hmm. I wasn't very keen on at the time mm-hmm. although there was nothing wrong with it um and we decided not really to go down that route. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that was because there was this realisation, you know what, actually, let's just try lowering your prednisone first before we add in another yeah, med. Yeah, actually, yeah. Um, that's because, so, I mean, I, so I struggle with anxiety, and I've shared yeah. that before, but um, and I've only had to do prednisone for short courses, but each time it has, like, triggered my anxiety, but, because, but knowing it's coming is, yeah, it is makes a big battle. Because then you can yeah. say, this isn't just, this is... My prednisone, making my brain think this. Right. And for me also, it was coffee. Like if I, right. if I do coffee and prednisone, not a good option. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so sorry. It makes anxiety worse. Well, and, and, you know, the other thing um, is I don't drink alcohol at all now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did at the time. And, you know, one of the things I learned from this psychiatrist was, you know, if you add alcohol on top of all of that, you know, alcohol oh. can impact depression and anxiety as well and okay, exacerbate right, them right. you know it might feel great when you're drinking it but mm-hmm, you know the mm-hmm. next day everyone's had that hangover where you feel mm-hmm. nervous about stuff um so then when i he then referred me to a therapist who said okay. you know i did this how long was i seeing him for uh, not massively long time like a couple of months maybe okay but just once a week went in and Mm-hmm. learn all this stuff and it was great and I still do it now so well you're good you're a I shouldn't say I actually try to say that you're a good patient I was gonna say you're a good patient but I know that we don't we shouldn't label people you know good patient or bad patient well, but I'm not no, always a good patient no, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well but no I think it'd be I mean I hope that no, we can figure out we can maybe send this to your old counselor or therapist because I think it's amazing that you're still able to use I mean and oh, I, I mean yeah. it's the same it's it's giving you it empowers you in my experiences with therapy with CB. T. I, now I'm getting confused with CBD and CBT, right. <laughs> and then I'm also doing this therapy called ACT, oh, which is Acceptance and Commitment. It stands for Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. It's known as like, it's a, it's a mindfulness-based thing, but okay. it's known as like the third wave in psychology and psychiatry, so like the second wave was CB, CBT, and it works great for some people. Some people can just stop with that. Mm-hmm. But my brain is special, so I needed to try something, because <laughs> I got to a point where I could do the CBT, the Cognitive Behavior Therapy exercises, but 
um, success, like I could successfully fill out the worksheets and, uh, you know, mm. but it, um, it didn't translate into a, a change in my relationship to my anxiety across the uh, certain areas until I tried the acceptance-based therapy, which it, so some people call it acceptance-based therapy. Okay. So, so it's instead of running, so to me, sometimes I was using CBT as a tool to try to run away from my anxiety. And okay. so acceptance forces you to tolerate your anxiety. So it's right. saying this is part of life. It's like for pain as well. Right. It's used to say this is part of life. Yeah. I'm experiencing it. I notice yeah. it. I notice I'm having thoughts about it, but it's, you sit with it. You do not try to, you don't try to counteract your thoughts with like okay. logic. You right. just, and it's the most counterintuitive thing because I'm very logical and I'm like, no, I should just like explain to my brain all the ways in which these thoughts are wrong. Right. But no, it, 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 that didn't work right. for me. So um, this, my, I, my psychiatrist, I'm fortunate, he does full hour long therapy sessions, which is kind of, psychiatry used to do that, but mm. nowadays it's more, um, uh, oftentimes people are uh, have the shorter kind of medication based mm. visits, but mine does both medication management and full therapy sessions. And so I, but so that's what's ended up working a blend. It's not that I never use CBT mm. strategies, but uh, that I focus on um, like accepting. Let's say I'm starting to panic instead of running away from it and saying like, I have to do a strategy to make my panic less or to make my anxiety less. It's like I just sit. I'm like, yep, I'm oh, noticing. I'm noticing this. So it is. It really is. It's a mindfulness based right. that you just notice. You don't. Mm. You don't label it as good or bad. Mm. You're like, yep, I'm feeling my heart beating, and I'm feeling that I'm, I'm noticing that my anxiety. You know, and it's 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 taken a lot of practice. It's right. not like at first you're like, this is this is dumb because I'm like, <laughs> I'm noticing that I feel bad. <laughs> What's where is this gonna go? Like, how's this when gonna I'm help gonna me? Fix it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Just really. So anyway, they're they're all helpful. So I'm not saying that ACT is better than CBT. For me, it was like. Um, that's been for my more heightened anxiety. It's ended up being kind of the missing puzzle piece that helped me really right. change my relationship oh, to anxiety. So sorry, I somehow turned this into. No, therapy. I'm glad it's working okay. for you. <laughs> Yay! But therapy's right. amazing. No shame in therapy. <laughs> Definitely not. I am curious um, your experiences with fatigue, which is something that a lot of people don't know about as a side effect or a, a part of living with rheumatoid arthritis. How has yeah. that affected you? So for me, fatigue is the most challenging symptom of rheumatoid. I have definitely had times when the rheumatoid's been uncontrolled, where my pain levels have been really, really high. And I don't want to minimise that at all mm-hmm, because... Mm-hmm. Um, but the fatigue that goes with it can be really overwhelming. And the only way I can describe it is it's absolutely like being hit by a truck it's not it's more than being tired uh it's happening because your body's in an inflammation state yeah. and so inflammation in inflammation okay, yeah okay, so you're, you're you know you've got a lot of inflammation yeah, going yeah, 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 on in yeah. your body and there's all sorts of I won't go into all of it but there's all sorts of things going on around that mm-hmm. and that makes you feel absolutely exhausted it's very similar feeling to if you've ever come down with flu as in not just a bit of a cold proper flu where you're knocked out for a week maybe a couple of weeks it's that similar feeling of when you just you know you stand up and you want to do things and you think oh I really really need to sit back down right now yeah so having fatigue uh it can 
really impact everything you know when it's that level and you know I've had times when it's pretty full-on and other times when it's less so but it can be just like walking through a constant fog yes yeah mental and, and physical yeah. I think that's hard to disentangle those two but yeah, yeah the mental fatigue sometimes where you feel like Maybe I, sometimes I have just one or the other. Is it the same for you, like, where I feel, like, really mentally foggy, but I'm, like, physically kind of functional, like, I can get up and move around, but then other times I'm mentally totally clear, and then, but my physical fatigue is, you know I've what I mean? i definitely had those on it's like different combos. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even when you know why it's happening and what's happening, it's still very difficult to deal with on a day-to-day level. Yes. Um, the ways I've dealt with them, I've dealt with it in a short-term way, which is, uh, you know, doing things like having coffee. Or, yes. if, you know, if I need to do something important, I'll have an espresso. Um, <laughs> which Strategic. Which is not long-term. Coffee. It's definitely yeah, ta- yeah, yeah. make this happen now. Long-term, the best way I have to deal with it is... Just looking after myself and making sure everything I can to get a good night's sleep, everything I can Mm -hmm. to eat healthy, all of that kind of stuff. Um, Trying to exercise actually does help, even though it's really difficult um, when you're not feeling like it like that. I I do find that really helps. I mean, the thing that works for me is is swimming. Yes. Um, But, you know, that can be tough. You're not feeling very motivated when you've got fatigue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, it makes work difficult. So I I did used to find that very tricky. Um, Yeah, I mean, the only way I've found to successfully tackle fatigue is tackling my RA overall. Mm, So the root cause. Yeah, I have not, I wish I had some amazing way that I could boost energy. And I mean, there are, you know, things that you can check into. It's always good to make sure you're getting enough vitamin D. It's always Mm -hmm. good to make sure, you know, you've got the right iron levels, all the sort of things that might undermine you having energy anyway mm-hmm. um but if all those things are working and it is just fatigue I, I, it's the most challenging thing because there's just so little or there's so little i found you can do to improve mm-hmm. it yeah one of the few things for me was learning about the relationship of like my internal circadian rhythms and like what times a oh. day so i'm a morning right. person and this is just something i've figured out on my own but you know if you, there's these charts you can see of like when the energy peaks of people who are like uh, morning people yeah. with their circadian rhythm versus eve versus night people like night owls so my husband's like a night owl and we can i could see like I, exactly on the graph um where my energy starts dipping so i just for me it's also the planning ahead of like even if i'm not fatigued from my ra I just get a dip in energy right. every like, afternoon, like mm. between like 2 and 3, 4 p.m. So I d- try not to schedule anything important. Right. That that you know, so sense. knowing you're... Ne- but yeah, you're, you're right that there's like... That's more of a compensating mechanism. You compensate for the difficulty, but you're not necessarily able to remediate it. Like, well, I mean, yeah. that, but that's very sensible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, definitely there's something... I do know every time I... Um, rheumatologists... Or, or mm-hmm. rheumatology clinics, you know, a number of times people have advised that I pace myself. Yeah, like energy pacing, pacing, yeah. Um, is, you know, many, many times. And and I do think you're right. There, it is very sensible to know yourself. And, and, and I'm a morning person too, so I know if I need to get yeah. something done, I'll get up and do it as the first thing. Right. If I leave it. Yawn <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, my nap is scheduled in the next 20 minutes. Well, and, and that's the mm. other thing is kind of knowing all that stuff. But, um, yeah, so pacing is key. Mm-hmm. I, I do think it's a sensible thing to do. 
it's also not always easy to do because not real possible. life gets in the way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um you know yeah. you, sometimes things happen always at a really not a great time so I know. Like you for, just have to get on with it like I used to work in a clinic setting where in pediatric clinics, the most popular time of the day is after school, which is afternoon, which uh, is when my energy is the worst. Yeah. Whereas when I worked in school-based pediatric therapy, mm. the m- most busy time of day was morning through early afternoon. Right. So I found that, yeah, again, but I have flexibility in my career. I have a lot of flexibility in choosing, okay. right? But whereas some people, their only options ever going to be right. nine to five, right, nine right. to five, or um, like my sister works night. So, you know, whatever it is, you might... Um, you know, ha- some careers lend themselves easier to energy pacing for than sure. others. I mean, you can't necessarily tell everyone I'm only available for meetings. Right. Nine and twelve. I mean, yeah. You can work for yourself. You can, but um, not everyone has that luxury. Oh, uh, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And also, I think you know, particularly people who are in jobs that involve being on your feet a lot. You know, I'm thinking like nursing, mm-hmm. hairdressing, things like that. You know, you're not going to be able to say to you know patients or clients, oh. Please don't yeah. leave me to come and do this thing at yeah, the time I'm yeah. having a bit of a dip. Yeah, um, yeah, it's really you know. hard. Flexible, yeah. If you could have a flexible career path, like where your work doesn't depend on a certain hour of the day, that's like ideal. But again, well, and um, and you know that's why I yeah honestly that's yeah. usually why I changed career mm-hmm. um, because you know I can't be in an office and like just say hang on a minute. I need to lay down between four and five. Yeah, oh, I need to lay yeah. down. And, you know, people are going to be like, what? Hey, dude, so, that's what millennials do. They, like, go in their hammocks. And oh, like, this is it. Yeah, yeah, no, maybe. You need to work for, like, Google. I, yeah, right. Yeah. I need to work yeah. at a big tech firm that's got a nap pod. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But they didn't have them when I was... No, no, no. <laughs> I missed that. I was too too old. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, the, the last thing I want to ask is about um, what... You know, you've had, you've lived with chronic illness for, for a long time. And I think when you've managed it for, you know, over 10 years, there's, there's, sometimes there's points where you get to where there aren't any, maybe sometimes yes. more yeah. options yeah, yeah. or like, how do you handle those moments or those conversations with doctors? So this, I think or is work. a, is a really important topic because I think it's something a lot of people shy away from. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it's hard for, for, for doctors or medical practitioners because we, you know, we live in a, you know, often we think about illness as being, you know, I'm sick, Do I come to you, mm-hmm. we have a solution, mm-hmm. we find a, we give, you know, here's a prescription or here's a do whatever and it fixes you and now you're back to normal mm-hmm. and you recover. And that's kind of what happens with a lot of illnesses right. that we're all familiar right. with. Um, or, or, you know, you're not fixed. That's the other alternative. But there's not a lot of room for you have a chronic condition that's going to get gradually worse and mm-hmm. you know we have certain medication options or you know lifestyle change options that you can do these things and you may have periods of remission and you may have periods where they stop working mm-hmm. and so accepting that and being mm-hmm. able to have those kinds of open both, both on the medical practitioner mm-hmm. side and the, the patient side is really difficult mm-hmm. and Definitely, you know, I, I've s- sat in conversations where I'm on my third biologic drug. And oh, me too. Yeah. Thanks. Ah. <laughs> and, um, you know, well, in that case, you know, you have this situation where 
Well, put it this way, on my third biologic drug, I'm so, I was so excited when Zeljans came out because yeah. I was like, oh, there's an extra one before I run out. Yeah, <laughs> they're racing against the clock. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and so it's almost like you feel like you're in this, this race of, oh, these people are developing these things. So I, I, I hope mine keep working until they come, you know. So it's, uh, it feels very, a bit scary because, you know, I'm doing really well right now on the, the drug I'm on. But, you know, I know if this stopped working what I've got left to do is not, you know, it's not, it's not a, you know, a really huge list of things. Yeah. And, Um, and, you know, the reason that some of these, in case you don't know that these, your immune system is attacking itself, which is part of rheumatoid arthritis, but then, and so you give it medication that, that alters the immune system, but then the immune system figures out workarounds. I know yeah. you already know this. So sometimes the reason that we expect, or as patients, you kind of expect that at some point some of these medications will wear off is because your own immune system kind of develops antibodies to the medications, unfortunately. Not everyone, but it's pretty typical to have them not last forever. Yeah. So 10 years is actually pretty long, your first one. Well, my first one was extremely... Yeah, mine was like seven years, but yeah. Yeah, which is also pretty good. But anyway, sorry. And, and, and here's the thing. I'm very, you know, to be clear, I am... You know, at the probably the best point in history to be having this because these yes. these medications have absolutely revolutionised you know the outcomes for for, mm-hmm. for rheumatoid patients. So I'm very grateful to have these things. But at the same time, you know, having spoken to people who are older than me or having seen you know mm-hmm. the level of damage that that joint damage and, and the level of pain levels that people have, you know, the, the thought of um, you know that the, these options are coming to end is is frightening. Uh, also, you know, the reality is that because of the kind of roller coaster nature of, 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 of flaring, rheumatoid, of flaring, yeah. you know, I do have um, some joint damage and I have got some, some issues. Um, I do occasionally uh, have mobility issues. I do have kind of a daily level of pain, which in the mm-hmm. scheme of, the, you know, in the scheme of rheumatoid is very minimal right now, which is fantastic. But um, in the scheme of compared to how I was before, you know, yeah. if I was... It's really funny. It's also kind of subjective. It's all relative. And relative. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that frustrates me a little bit is that, you know, I've really had to figure out a lot of my lifestyle and pain management myself. And a lot of that I've got from other patients. Um, you know, there's lots of, you know, kind of day-to-day tricks that make my life easier that I've learned just from trial and error or other people have told me, other patients. Uh, there's also some things around pain management that I, again, learned on my own or, or from other people or, or just really random sources. I, I used to have a lady I went to for massage who taught me loads of really great pain management stuff, actually. Um, right, right. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, like, this is why one of my goals of this project yeah. is to raise awareness of occupational therapy as a very helpful treatment option that most patients don't get currently for reasons I can't figure out. But, you know, our, we can, occupational therapists can walk someone through a day in your life. Where are all the areas where you're having difficulty? Is it brushing your hair? Is it taking mm. a shower? Is it, you know, really down to that granular level? But you were never, ever referred to occupational therapy, right? Or no, I wasn't I, either. So <laughs> I have never been referred to occupational therapy. I've never been referred to a pain management clinic wow. yeah I've never I did have uh, years ago a referral to a podiatrist because mm-hmm. I had some these to. feet problems um but yeah I think it's well, a shame because 
you know, going from that, hey, you've got something wrong with you, we can fix you, to, okay, this is, we're in it for the long haul. Mm. Let's look about how we can manage it. Because, you know, I want to know what can I do to do these things. I don't want right. to find, it's not very efficient finding them all out by trial or error. No. I, I think I said in a conversation with you before, it took me about 10 years to work out I can buy pull-on trousers that don't have zips on. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, it's something like that that's so simple, simple that if I'd thought of it before, it would have made an enormous difference well, to me. And it's a burden to you. You're already to have to manage all that on your own when yeah. there's this profession. Like, I just can't help because I also teach occupational therapy. I'm thinking of all these students that are doing all these papers on, like, you know, we, we study these case studies of people that don't actually exist. I'm like, geez, we should just get a bunch of rheumatoid arthritis patients and have the students oh, do all yeah, their projects on, uh, on nice them. Place. But I, the reason about that, <laughs> the reason that can't happen is because of confidentiality or, I don't oh, know, right. I okay. guess, giving, having students, I don't know, I have to figure that out. But yeah, there's just so many, there's gaps in them. Again, we're not, I'm not saying this just to like complain, but there's really access to care gaps that aren't just about access like financially. Like when people say right. access to care, they usually are. I think some, talking about either like, you know, physical, like maybe a rural area or someone in Alaska can't like access a pediatric oh, rheumatologist. Okay. They also mean access financially, but also I think access to just like un, to a referral, like access you as a patient, I feel given that you've walked me through so many like think daily life challenges you've had, mm. you have very many reasons to have been referred to an occupational therapist. And I don't know why that I'm, I'm partly on the side doing a kind of needs analysis and trying to figure out what, what side is it coming from? Is it the doctors don't know our scope or is it that occupational therapists haven't, like what's the chicken or egg? Like have we not ensured that we're integrated? Like are we supposed to integrate ourselves better or are they supposed to refer? I, I don't know what's wrong, but one of my reasons of doing this is is just to address the need I saw of basic life hacks. You can learn them from videos, but ideally you could get them, you know, um, someone to customize them to you. That's when it's like right. real therapy, you know, where it's like, okay, I'm looking, I'm assessing your body, looking mm-hmm. at where your joint problems are right. and your fatigue is and you know, making those holistic recommendations. So Well, yeah, because there's whole communities um, online where people are like saying, hey. <laughs> how do I clean my kitchen? Right, how do I right. Hold my knife. How I can't I- make my bed. Well, how do and you do And then you have it? these like students that are spending hours and hours on papers, like literally with these hypothetical patients exactly right. like that. I'm like, ah! How we're- Sorry, I'm just going to blow out the audio. There. <laughs> how can I like, oh, I need to bridge this gap. But like, this is just, anyway, so. Um, so, so initially we're talking about fatigue, but now talking about kind of the, it, it blends into, yeah, the daily challenge, the day in the life well, kind of challenges. And to round it back to fatigue, one mm. of the things that I have learned firsthand is that by, you know, making my life as simple as possible, um, as I say, right now I'm pretty good. I'm mm-hmm. in a near remission, but that means that I can take the opportunity to set my life up in such a way that. Mm-hmm. if and when fingers crossed but assuming that in the future I will have a heavy dose of fatigue mm-hmm. come out of nowhere mm-hmm. a big flare or something then actually you know I'm, I'm I've made my life as easy as possible for right. myself you know right, right, right. I have got the tools I need to open that jar you know right, or right, I've got right. the prevention, like <laughs> you prevention. Know, yeah. I'm not really just all that stuff all these little mm-hmm. things because mm-hmm. these tiny things they really add up. 
and uh, you know and and I do think it actually in a drip 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 way does contribute to your emotional state and mental health because if you're being constantly frustrated Mm -hmm. it's sometimes the little things that really get you I I mean I've definitely had experiences where I've been in you know really high levels of pain and I can kind of soldier through and soldier through and soldier through until then I try to undo a button and I burst into tears you know and it's like I remember my husband saying hang on a minute this is I don't understand it's because you. It's just a button, but it's, it's not. just a, why are you upset over this button? Yeah. Um, you, you, you know, and and of course it's not just a button, but that's that level mm-hmm. of it's just that little bit of frustration that takes you past your mm-hmm. coping mm-hmm. Uh, ability or your your your, you know, just tips you over. So yeah, the more of those that you can take out of the equation, mm-hmm. the easier it is to cope. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I find it's really good, you know, to, to optimise your mm-hmm. management of your illness. For me, what works is being in supportive patient communities. That I can mm-hmm. vent because I don't want to wear out my family all the time with it. Mm-hmm. Um, being Having a good rheumatology team mm-hmm. and also then being able to have access to really solid information from people like Arthritis Foundation. So I think That's those three cool. things coming that. together, um, it really makes a, you know, a good difference for me. Having all that is really helpful. That's so great. I'm like literally visualizing a, a, a graphic like I can a, make a, out a of that. Diagram. Yeah, I love that. That's so, so helpful. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to check out my latest courses and resources on myarthritislife.net. This podcast is brought to you by the Beginner's Guide to Life with Rheumatoid Arthritis, a four-week online education and support program that I created from scratch to help people with inflammatory arthritis learn everything they need to know to navigate the social, emotional, physical, and logistical challenges of rheumatoid arthritis and related diseases. The next group is going to start in August 2020. Learn more at myarthritislife.net or bit.ly slash arthritis course, all in lowercase. You can also connect with me on my social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and even TikTok. Check out the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.